Anadi, how would you describe your skin color? Brown. I would describe my skin as a beachy tan color. Brown. I would describe my skin color as brown. I'd describe my skin as brown and almondy in color. I would say my skin color is brown. Brown. I would describe my skin color as brown and dark. A brownish, lightish color. It's not dark. It's a little dark, but not too, too dark. My skin color is a Fenty Matchsticks shade bamboo. Light brown. I would describe my skin color a lightish brown. And I would say that my skin color looks like a saddle brown kind of color. Okay. I would describe my skin color as white and smooth. And what food is similar to your skin color? Almond. Kind of look like a bagel or a glazed donut. And a food that's similar to it is milk chocolate. I'd say it's similar to iced coffee. The food that it reminds me of is brownies. A chocolate bar. Um, a food that matches my skin color is hot chocolate. The ones we ate for what dinner. Is what is that? The pork? The pork with yeah, light the brown. pork. With sauce? Yeah. Mm, I would say dark, I would say dark gravy. My skin color is hot cocoa. This skin right here. Inside breath? Kind of similar. Your, your skin is the same color as inside bread? Yes. What kind of bread? Mm, squishy bread. Squishy bread? Okay. Yes. Lighter potato? I think chicken, or no, like drumsticks would be the color. I describe my skin as a potato. A warmer tone of chocolate ice cream. Hi, my name is Jose Gonzalez. And I'm Anita Phillip. And we are pediatric residents at UT Austin Dell Medical Center. Um, and we're reflecting on our prior experiences with race and using our unique perspective as pediatric residents. So, Anita, um, looking back as a pediatrician, are there any childhood experiences that have shaped your perception of, of color and race? Yeah, I would say I think the biggest thing that I could kind of relate to is probably going all the way back to kindergarten um, and using just markers and crayons and I specifically remember looking at the box and seeing that there was no color to actually shade my skin. I always thought that the brown marker was a, was too dark to actually be able to like show my features. Um, but the one thing that kind of always stood out to me was when the teacher would always say pick your favorite color and you can start writing with that specific color. No one would ever want black or brown and to me, being a five-year-old, it just came across as seeing brown as just a color that was undesired and nobody wanted. Um, and I remember specific classmates saying that brown was just an ugly color in general. Um, and so that as a child, just looking at yourself in the mirror and seeing that color that nobody wanted, I think that in a way has shaped how I went through a lot of my my school years and my perception and self-esteem of myself. And I think it took a while for me to actually accept who I am um, being a colored person. So yeah, that, that's interesting that you say that um, because um, my mom was a teacher and I spent uh, many years sort of restocking the crayons and um, there's always, you know, there's always a shortage of the pink crayon, and every box the the peach crayon is is um, is not present, and in the big giant teacher boxes, it's always empty. I had to refill those all the time, and nobody is really that color. Like nobody, nobody is the color of a peach. Um, so yeah, and it wasn't until recently that I was reflecting that as well. Um, so um, like, at what point did you realize that that maybe you were different? 
Honestly, it was probably when I started kindergarten. I remember kids actually pointing out my skin color and asking if I didn't wear sunblock. Um, and just looking back, it, would, it, it seems kind of insane that other children had not seen people of different colors at that point. Um, and so to me, it was honestly when I started school that I noticed that I was different than my classmates. Um, and a lot of it was how it was pointed out to me um, by my peers. It sounds like maybe some of your peers were pointing out these differences as if as if having a certain skin shade were a bad thing. Um, did anybody ever talk to you about, about racism as a child or um, how that might be perceived as racism? No, not explicitly. I think my parents just always have had a mistrust of people that weren't from the Indian um, background, and that was largely probably shaped from their own experiences um, that oftentimes that our culture um, has its own back, but you can't really easily trust other people. And so it came down to, yes, you're different than other people and you can't trust them because of your being different. What do you think about the multicultural crayons? Um, do you think that um, it could be an effective tool for addressing racism with children? Yeah, I absolutely think so, because for me, at least growing up as a child, and you kind of mentioned it, there were only two colors you could pick, and that was peach or brown. And I think the box alone, um, having such a variety of shades to pick from, it's more than just crayons. At that point, it's more of a representation of people um, and that we all come from different backgrounds and in a way, normalizing it from an early age, a very early formative stage um, for children. Yeah, I totally agree with everything you just said. You know, it, it's only in hindsight and after training as a pediatrician um, that I'm sort of realizing how much of a profound impact this can have on young kids' minds. We are thrilled to welcome our guests today, Drs. Gigi Awad and Kevin Coakley. Dr. Awad is an associate professor in the Department of Educational Psychology at the University of Texas, Austin. She's done extensive research in the areas of identity and acculturation, race and racism, and correlates of prejudice and discrimination, just to name a few of the areas. Dr. Coakley is a professor of African and African diaspora studies and of educational psychology at the University of Texas, Austin. His research and teaching can be broadly categorized in the area of African-American psychology. Both Drs. Coakley and Awad have interests and expertise in far more areas than can be succinctly summarized. They also have two children together, and so it's not only their professional expertise, but also their experiences as parents that makes this conversation special. So suffice it to say, we are really grateful to be able to chat with you both today about how we as pediatricians can be better prepared to talk to kids, teens, and their families about racism. We just um, are so happy to have you this morning. And then, you know, for us, I wanted to sort of set the stage where I'm a pediatrician. I've been practicing for 15 years almost. And all of these uh, pediatricians who are here with us this morning are in their training. Some of them are just finishing up the first year of training, and some of them are almost done with their three years of training and about to sort of launch into their next endeavor. And we all work together. I'm an outpatient pediatrician. We all work together at Community Care East Austin Clinic, which is over on Kamal Street. And that's where we see um, uh, pediatric patients from zero to 18. And that's sort of my area of expertise and where I interact with uh, the pediatric residents on a daily and weekly basis. So I think, you know, sort of the intersection, obviously, besides your accomplishments is that you're, you're parents. I believe you have two children. Do I have that right? Yeah, and we have an eight-year-old and a 12-year-old. Awesome. Awesome. And sort of, you know, we as pediatricians have a lot of contact with families, uh, especially in the first, you know, three to five years of life, but really ongoing, the relationships we make. We have a lot of contact, a lot of FaceTime, and we see families and parents sort of at their most vulnerable moments. And parents often ask us, you know, what we think about things and, and take our opinions seriously, even when we feel really unprepared and uh, like we're not the experts in whatever it is that we're being asked about, you know, and a lot of what we do besides medicine is parenting, 
and um, sort of just family support. And so it's kind of at that intersection um, that sort of we come to today. We've been this year uh, sort of thinking about in our curriculum about health disparities and racism. And this group focused particularly on talking to children and families about racism sort of in the setting of the pediatric visit, sort of how can we be supportive? How can we address those questions, raise those issues, be supportive to families, and then thinking about ourselves as individuals and professionals. So that's kind of the, the backdrop. Hopefully that sets the stage. So I'm gonna have Nikki Miller, who's a first year resident, um, ask the first question and we'll get going. Hi there, I'm Nikki. Thank you both for being here. We're really fortunate to be able to learn more um, about having conversations about race with both of you. Um, That brings me to my first question, which is what role can and should a pediatrician play in facilitating these conversations with our patients and their families? And is an office visit the appropriate setting for that? Well, um, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab. I think that any professional who is working with um, families has a responsibility to, to address issues that impact the, the well-being and functioning of, of those families. And so I guess my, my, my short answer would be yes. Um, I, I absolutely think that that is um, something that that decision should do. Um, I hear some feedback on some. I don't know if someone's um, audio is on. Um, the, the the question, of course, is how do they do that? Do that uh, and do that in a way that is, um, you know, appropriate um, and that is effective. Um, but but my short answer is I, I do think so. And I think the second part of your question was should they do that in in an office setting? Was that did I hear that correctly? Um, you know, I, I think that. That depends. Um, I, I certainly think uh, doing it in an office setting, I think, um, in some ways elevates the issue to one of, of what I believe to be its, it's appropriate importance um, in terms of part of a, uh, a holistic way of sort of dealing with the family. So, so in that sense, I would say, I think, yes, it absolutely should occur in an office setting. So our child's pediatrician is Juan Guerrero at Austin Diagnostic, I don't know if you know um, him at all, but he, what I love about going to the pediatrician's office is that it is really like a holistic experience. And they're asking about so many aspects of life that is important, right? And especially if you think about, you know, really incorporating a biopsychosocial model of like a holistic experience, it's, it's important to talk about things that are causing chronic stress or stress in life, because we know the data shows over and over that it's related to, you know, medical outcomes, right? So um, I think it absolutely is a really good place. I think the more folks we have involved in, in sort of teaching and talking about racial issues, the better we can actually dismantle systems of oppression and racism. And one of the, the ways that systems of, of oppression and racism are maintained is that people don't talk about it or feel like it's taboo or inappropriate to talk about. And we know that people trust doctors and their physicians and their pediatricians to bring up things that are concerning to them. And, you know, it is, you know, also the responsibility to learn about some of these things to know how to answer. And I think, you know, it's simply just becoming educated on how to to talk about race. And the cool thing about talking about race is the fact that we part of the problem is not talking about race. So even talking about it is actually helping the situation and helping alleviate the stress and some of these negative outcomes because it's sort of the silence around it that maintains the issues. How do you suggest that we equip ourselves as pediatricians to have these conversations? What can we learn ourselves to be able to facilitate that? So I, I mean, it, it seems like a really old fashioned kind of answer, but you know, I teach a class on psychology of race and racism. Um, Kevin teaches classes on like multicultural research. Like there are, there are courses also that if this is also included in the curriculum of um, 
topics that should be understood by, I would say, anybody that's a core part of society, really. Um, but especially you all who are seen as authorities within society in, in a really important way um, that, you know, there's lots of readings you can do. You know, I know that book clubs became really popular um, after the summer of, of 2020. Um, but there, there are ways to be able to process information. But I think really um, specifically getting training on how to talk about race specifically, understanding the nomenclature, understanding um, sort of some of the dynamics with how we even uh, broach these topics, um, not only in the terms that we use, but sort of who, what we, what topics we privilege, from what perspective are we talking to, really centering the the folks that are really struggling's voices, and how do we do that? So it is, it's hard, it's a hard task, but it's not impossible, and you know, and I've seen in my, I don't know, 17 years of teaching psychology of race and racism, people learn the skills to talk about race. And I think that's really the number one thing is to learn the skills to talk about it and learn the skills of where to find resources. And there are lots of book lists and lots of places you can go and lots of experts that you could, you know, learn from. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and of course, professional development opportunities, like what we're doing right now, um, would, would clearly be um, a way to continue to gain more knowledge and, and awareness and skills of, around um, discussing race. I, you know, one of the things that I that I did um, this well, oh, oh, really, I, that I've been doing for a while, but particularly over the past year, is um, doing a lot of speaking for different professional um, sort of entities who. You know, as, as a result of you know, particularly the you know, George Floyd's um, death, um, you know, combined with Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, you know, there has been this this awakening, you know, in this country, um, and you know, of course, it's cyclical, but it it felt different, right, um, after the events of the summer, and so I've been asked to sort of, you know, I've, I've spoken with lawyer groups, with with judges. Um, with mental health professionals, um, Gigi and I both, you know, did a podcast. Oh, I'm sorry, not a podcast. We did a, a six-hour, um, um, really sort of webinar of training with um, mental health professionals. And so, I would say that you know, to the extent that you can sort of seek or you know, sort of create those op professional de development opportunities where you can be in settings where you can sort of talk about how. You know, again, like we're doing now, like what is it that, you know, you know, you know, your peers are doing, your colleagues are doing when they are, you know, sort of discussing matters of race with with um, families. Um, I I think what what I have observed is, is that too many times th these sorts of conversations are are it's, it's they're, they're either not happening or it's assumed that they don't rise to the level of something where professional development needs to take place. People just sort of do it, you know, based on, you know, what they think they know and understand about it. And that's not really properly elevating it to the to the status that I, I think we all can agree it, it needs. Um, it is, you know, not everyone is equipped to, to, to talk about race. Uh, certainly, you know, most people are not comfortable talking about race, right? Because we we aren't socialized um, as, a, as, a, as, as a country to, to have open and frank um, discussions about race. And so we can't expect people to be able to just sort of go into any situation and to be able to do so effectively. So I'm a big proponent of um, constant professional development. Um, and so discussing race should be a priority, I, I would say for, for any profession, particularly for professions where you are interfacing you know, with, with, with people and in your case with, with children and families. Hi, my name is Shervin Cote, and I'm also a first-year pediatric resident training along with Nikki. Um, going off what we've discussed so far, what age do you think it's appropriate to start having these discussions about race in our clinics? And from y'all's perspective, how do you foresee those discussions changing as the child gets older? So I'll take this one. Um, you know, here's the thing about kids 
That's so fantastic. So right around four to six years old, they start to be really into justice, right? That's not fair. I was my turn, right? And it, it manifests differently for kids, but it's, it's developmentally, that's where they are. And so right around this age is a perfect time to bring in notions of social justice, right? And, and differences in like experiences of racial groups and how that's not okay. And start to talk about the history, you know, in the United States, it used to not be fair at all. I mean, and it still isn't in a lot of ways. And this is how, and in ways that also still give hope for change, you know, certainly um, we don't want to break spirits of children, right? But um, I think, you know, it could start as early as four to six, especially when those, you know, justice sort of beliefs become really strong um, and really incorporating social justice. You know, we're really fortunate you know, when our daughter was in kindergarten, her teacher was really into social justice curricula. And so, she, you know, my daughter came home often being like, it wasn't fair. Did you know that this happened? <laughs> yeah, actually, we do. We do know. I'm so glad that, you know, that um, you're learning about this. And, and that, I think, really taking advantage of that especially sort of where, you know, we know kids' brains are so plastic and like they, they really can, you can really foster like a social justice orientation pretty young um, and really encourage kids to, you know, so how, what would you do in this case to make it fair? You know, what, why do you think it was wrong? And sort of talking about that so that as they're slowly developing, then you incorporate, you know, maybe more serious sort of discussions, but as early as four, they can really have these discussions. And even earlier for kids of color that, you know, when we're noticing like differences or like, why aren't there a lot of people that look like me in this space or talking about some of those things. But I, I would say for sure around four to six and, you know, once they get older um, you can you can also include a lot more action oriented things. So really talking about like active anti-racist behaviors, anti-racist actions, you know, getting um, kids, you know, as so I talk to parents also about this a lot, you know, having parents get them involved in you know, uh, pro not like some sort of protest and activism. Right. And it doesn't have to be like marching in the streets protesting, but some way of sort of thinking about these issues and how do we combat them? Um, and, and so I, I am all about starting this as early as possible because this part of the problem of our society right now is that we think it's such a taboo topic and definitely we're not going to talk to kids about it. And that's actually how we solve some of these issues is, is talking to kids and making it normal that racism is wrong and bad and understanding what racism is, not racism in this old fashioned explicit way where some very explicit action is happening, but racism in sort of the subtleties and the microaggressions and the, you know, thinking that certain groups are superior than others, like the elements of racism that are a lot more covert and a lot more subtle can be taught to kids a lot younger so that they not only recognize them, but they can act against them and speak out. And it increases like bystander in intervention of children. Because if these kids have a strong, you know, justice orientation and they see something happening, even within their peers, they'll speak up more often. So I think it really is like a system level, you know, it, it takes the pediatricians and it takes the teachers and it takes the parents and it takes like really all members of society to constantly be normalizing these, these discussions. And you can get more serious as you get, they get older. Um, that's, you know, developmentally appropriate. And there are amazing like book lists that um, really have all these different books broken down by age group and it goes all the way up to adulthood. So there are a lot of really cool resources about if, especially if like reading books is sort of part of that development. What are a few tips you can give physicians who are not people of color to open questions about race? Well, I mean, you know, I, I think I would say that being able as a, as you know, 
a physician who's who's not a person of color, uh, don't underestimate the significance of having being able to talk openly about race with your um, patients of color. Uh, I, I think you might find yourself. I think you might be surprised at at the responsiveness that your um, clients of color may have, because too often that's not the case. Um, and in fact, what I think more often than not, what ends up happening is, is that that uh, patients of color, clients of color have come to expect that their white um, sort of medical providers are not going to talk about um, their lived experiences as people of color. And so to to actually do that, um, you might find it will um, increase the rapport that you have with um, your clients of color. It will increase um, the trust. We, we know that that issues of, of mistrust um, are fairly um, uh, pervasive amongst uh, people of color. Some pe um, people of color, perhaps more than others. And so anything that you can do um, to reduce or minimize those feelings of mistrust um, would be very important. And I would say that one of the most important things that you can do is to acknowledge that, you know, there are clear differences in, you know, sort of like, you know, your, your identities and your lived experiences. Um, as, as a white physician, I would, you know, say that it would be helpful to acknowledge that, look, I don't know what it's like to, you know, live, you know, life as, you know, fill in the blank. Um, I can't, you know, so I, I, I don't know. So I need you to kind of help me understand, um, what your lived experience has been, um, so that that can be a part of the way that the physician sort of um, conceptualizes and, and, and assists in um, your medical treatment. Um, so I, I guess what my, my point is, is that don't shy away from it. Um, now, 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 that being said, and well, and I should also say that, you know, you don't have to be perfect. I mean, part, I, I think part of what makes uh, people um, feel better when dealing with people who have not had to deal with, you know, like certain racialized experiences is, you know, there being a certain um, humility and honesty about what, what they know and what they don't know. And so it's okay. I think to, you know, for a physician, you know, who, again, your physicians are, 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 are sort of put on pedestals and the scene is all knowing, but I think it's, there's something really refreshing about a, a physician uh, saying to, you know, their client of color, Hey, I don't know what it's like, you know, to to be um, Asian or to be Latinx or, or, or to be black or you know, you know, whatever. And it, it would be helpful for me um, to hear from you what has what it, has your lived experience been like, um, and how might some of the things you've experienced um, as a person of color, you know, be impacting um, your health or whatever. And, and so I, I think that it's it's, it's important. Um, did you would you you know? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I also wanted to say that it's really good to bring it up and it could be something as simple as like, you know, um, you know, the current, like the news seems really stressful, especially for black folks and folks of color during this time. And I just want to make sure, you know, I want to ask about, you know, how um, are you all handling stress or something like that? And also be okay if they don't want to talk to you about it. That's the other thing. So there's there's sort of the, the both sides. I think it is super refreshing. I think most people will be like, oh, wow, this is new. <laughs> Someone is asking about these issues and they'll be happy. But then some folks may not, they're exhausted and they don't want to talk about it, right? And they might not be very responsive. And then you have other folks that may be in a different identity stage in which they're really not trying to make race salient part of their life. And that's how they're coping. And that's I think less common, but there's also a lot of reasons why people may not like engage. So don't take that as a failure. Don't take that as something that, oh, I must have done something wrong um, because that's not necessarily the case. We also know that people are in different places of, of you know, how they really want to talk about this and with whom. So, um, but I do think overall, it's, it's a good idea to try to broach the topic and it could be in like a subtle way um, uh, you know, that is just really acknowledging kind of the stressors that might be happening, right? The things that are really related to what you're doing, you know, and during, you know, an office visit. 
you know, cause I, I mean, I know that my physicians are like, you always seem stressed. And I'm like, I'm a tenure track, you know, faculty member and I'm always stressed. So, you know, so those kind of things. And I think, um, I think just bringing it up will be so helpful and, and, and so important for them. And then beyond the clinic visit, how can we empower our families to continue having those conversations outside of our clinic? I think giving resources to them. I think, you know, the thing I also love is just like, there's these cute little handouts that I get about like, your child is eight years old. This is what it means. Like having something like that, that's actually geared towards difficult topics. Here's the thing. I've seen such amazing um, changes in just how pediatricians sort of talk about issues of child sexual abuse and things like that and how those topics are broached. And I feel like that's actually much farther along than when we talk about like racial uh, topics. And so taking kind of um, a tactic like that, like there's, you can actually just have like literature with resources, like community resources, um, uh, reading resources. Uh, there's, a, I think having just a list and not only does that give them resources, but it also tells them that you care about this and think this is a valid issue within their lives that's impacting them. I think the messaging is really important. It's it's twofold. It's not just here's a list of things, but here we care about this. We know this is an issue. Here's Here are some ways, um, here are some things that may help you. Um, and so I... I think that that normalizing it is really important. I think as being kind of part of, you know, their experience. Yeah. Do y'all have any specific resources that you've come across that you'd recommend for us to give our families when they go home? There's a, I mean, I think we, we have like lists of like different websites and um, yeah book list and stuff that we could probably send you all. Yeah, we, we, we could get that too easily. I mean, we, um, from the, the webinars that we've given, um, we've been able to um, compile lists of resources that include um, books, uh, videos, um, articles. Um, so we could get that to you very easily. And people like to use like the Embrace Race website where it has a lot of like very practical things. So, I mean, there's, there are, we, we are, we'd be happy to compile some of those for you. Thank you. That would be very helpful for us. Um, one of the other kind of angles I wanted to look at this is how does this conversation change when we're speaking with a patient and a family of color versus um, a patient and family not of color? Is it different? Is it the same? You know, how, how can we change the conversation? I think it's very different. Um, you know, families of color are, are coming from an experiential, you know, position of, you know, they're, they're, experiencing this chronic stress um, because of, you know, their experience as people of color. Um, and I think for white folks, I mean, it's really good to sort of talk about, you know, kind of general, like, are you talking to your kids about social justice and society and, and how we treat other people and sort of how our society is set up so that we don't like maintain these hierarchies that are based on these kind of false beliefs of superiority. I mean, there are different ways because the thing is, is that, you know, even trying to get white parents to talk to their kids about race is really, really difficult, right? Um, because people have their own ideologies about what they think is really going on, right? And especially if you have a parent that is really believes in these like meritocracy beliefs that, you know, you get what you earn. If you, if something bad happens to you because you've done something to, to warrant that, like, so there, so I, part of what I study is all how all of these attitudes and ideological beliefs predict prejudicial attitudes. Okay. And I, it, so it's sometimes really hard to change some of those beliefs. So I'll give you two major ones that really impact how uh, parents would think about racism. 
One is called social dominance orientation. And these are folks that just believe they're just groups that are superior and groups that are inferior and that their group is part of the superior group, okay? And then the other one is right-wing authoritarianism. And those who have those social, social ideological beliefs, those are the individuals that um, are really wedded to conventionalism. So it's, it's part of the beliefs of like, we need to make America great again. We need to go back to the good old days. We need to, um, we're losing ground, right? And it's a, a response to feeling like, you know, white folks are falling behind and people of color are taking their spots and, um, and also includes like authoritarian submission, meaning like looking for authorities that are sort of uh, also kind of talking about these issues and following their lead as well as authoritarian um, uh, like aggression. So showing aggression towards outgroup members, right? And so those folks that have both social dominance orientation and right-wing authoritarianism, they're really hard to change. They are. But with kids, the thing about kids is that if those things are implemented early on, they're usually the ones who are like, mom, dad, what are you talking about? That's wrong. Like, the, you know, so they end up having a social justice orientation. And so it's really tricky if you have those parents in your office and you want to talk to them about like, hey, are you talking to your kids about race? They're like, what? Why? Why would I do that? There's, we're not racist. Are you saying we're racist? Because that's what's going to happen. <laughs> They'd be like, we're not racist. Um, but then just sort of said like, no, we really want to talk about um, creating good citizens of, of the, you know, of the world and, you know, getting kids active in sort of justice and stuff like that. And it's hard. I'm currently trying to do a study about how do we talk to, how do we get parents to talk to their kids about race and their willingness to sort of engage in like anti-racist um, intervention. So we're, we're in that. So I'll let you know more when we move forward, um, how to do that. But um, it's, it's a difficult situation, but it's, I think, again, coming back to normalizing talking about race, it's really important to normalize talking about race with white folks as well. Um, yeah. If, if I could if I could add to that, yeah, no, um, talking to white families will definitely be different than talking to families of color. We have a colleague and friend um, named Lisa Spanierman who is at Arizona State University. And she's, she's a, a white counselor psychologist. And one of um, her most important contributions has been around this notion of the psychosocial cost of racism to white people. And she created a scale um, to, to measure this. And it's really important because what she does in the scale is she, she has these different sort of aspects to what happens how does racism impact white people? Um, because, you know, too often the question is asked how racism impacts people of color. But she's like, well, what? it's not good for white people either. And so she created the scale, the psychosocial cause of racism. And, she, and part of what she sort of found out, found from her research is that um, it, um, it results in increased white guilt. Um, you know, so for those who, who tend to be more on the liberal side, um, the impact of racism, the psychosocial impact of racism is that it increases a, a sense of, of white guilt um, because of all the social injustices that you sort of, you know, see around you. For those who are, um, you know, per, perhaps not more on the, uh, you know, progressive side, um, it results in um, a white fear of others. So it's just, you know, it's just this perpetual fear of individuals who are different um, and who are not white. Um, and whether it's white guilt or, you know, sort of a fear of others, um, neither one of these, you know, would be, you know, sort of related to, you know, positive um, sort of outcomes or certainly, you know, mental health outcomes. And so I would say that, yes, it, it is absolutely going to be different talking to white families. And what Gigi said is, is, is correct that, you know, if you want to sort of if you approach it from the vantage point of, hey, you know, we want to produce uh, children who are going to be happy, healthy, who are going to be good citizens. Um, you know, we don't want to produce individuals who who have a, you know, irrational sort of fear of others who have these negative attitudes about, you know, people who are different from them that that is really, you know, unhealthy. Um, you have to have a, a, a different conversation 
uh, with white families, you know, mo many of whom are not, again, as, as I said earlier, not really socialized to, to talk, to have these discussions um, with their children. How is the conversation with teens different? I think with teens, what's so great is that you can really incorporate more of the activism and social justice and sort of action-oriented ways um, to combat some of these issues, especially, you know, for teenagers, sometimes like channeling their emotions into these kind of um, activities of, you know, activism can really be, you know, a healthy way to just you know, channel all of the kind of different feelings that they're ha uh, having. Um, and so it's just a good outlet overall as well. But um, I think with teenagers, you definitely want to give suggestions for action oriented things um, that can happen, especially um, activities that uh, you really feel like you're, you're making a difference, you're doing something to really help. You know, one of the things I think we talk about a lot in clinic when it comes to difficult topics is how, you know, we're all humans and we all, you know, yet, you know, you made a great point about how physicians are often on a pedestal, but really we're all humans and we can have a human conversation about the things we're experiencing. And I think sometimes it makes, it makes it easier to think of it from that perspective and everything you both have, have said today this morning has really driven that point home for me, you know, just this open conversation, not from my recognizing that our position as physicians puts us in this kind of, you know, gives us this opportunity to have these conversations, um, but really kind of being at, you know, the level with our families and, and patients where we're talking about sh sometimes shared experiences, sometimes experiences that we can't relate to, but we, if we care about this fellow human being, we want to talk about it. And I, and I think that's really sort of powerful for me. I feel like you both have said things today that I can literally start to implement this afternoon. <laughs> like that's how practical it feels. Um, you know, cause it feels overwhelming sometimes as, as physicians to, to think about how you, you feel this burden of, like you said, you know, you want to do it perfectly. You want to do it right. I don't want to do any damage. I don't want to contribute to whatever it is, you know, the mistrust of the system, you know, it just becomes this, you, you become paralyzed a little bit um, thinking about how to do it. And so you've just, you've just brought up these like really practical ways. And I, but I think the remembering our, our shared humanity is really important. Yeah, a, a, absolutely. If I, if I could add just one uh, other thing. So um, regarding adolescence and, and we know that there are, you know, developmental differences and kids understanding about race and how you speak to them about race. Um, but some of the work that was done by a really well-known developmental psychologist um, at the university of Texas at Austin, uh, Rebecca Bigler, um, examines the, 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 the different ways in which children understand and are able to sort of process uh, matters of race. And so one of the things that she said about um, adolescents, you know, 12 and up, is that, that they, adolescents become much more knowledgeable about racial stereotypes. So, you know, so clearly, you know, as we get older, we become more aware of the things that, that people say about, you know, other so-called racial groups. And so adolescents become much more knowledgeable about racial stereotypes. Um, and like you just said, they, they began to attend to social justice issues. Um, and so they also may become a bit more stereotypic in their own attitudes. Um, you see here that friendships become more intimate and, you know, and, and they are starting to become interested in dating. And so issues of cross-race relationships um, and dating, you know, become issues that they have to sort of grapple with because now they're at the age where they're, they're making these decisions. They're, they're becoming interested in, in, in other people. And, you learn, you learn pretty quickly, you know, issues about race based on whom you choose to uh, befriend, whom you choose to to date, the messages that you receive from your your family uh, around these decisions that you make, and so so you're you're able to have you know you know a bit more sort of mature and sophisticated conversations with adolescents uh, when you start talking about race. The most uncomfortable aspects will always be the mismatch between the child's attitude and their parents for you all, right? And I think that's, I wish I had like a good solution for that, but it's always the challenge, right? It's, you know, especially with teenagers and adolescents, you know, they're trying to exert their autonomy, 
and differentiation from parents in a lot of ways, especially around these issues, right? So um, if a parent comes in and they're just like, and you broach a topic and it's very clear they're not open or they have really strong like negative views or whatever the case may be, there's still a lot of hope for the child because, you know, a lot of times you, at least I will tell you in my classes, when I get students, I mean, I hear all of these stories, right? Oh, my parents said this, or my parents feel this way, and I don't feel that way. This is how I feel, and sort of how they sort of struggle as college students, which is late adolescence, right? Um, in sort of how do they interact with their parents? So even, so this is clearly starting much earlier than when they're in high school, in college. So I mean, there's still hope for that. And to just, I feel like, don't feel, don't get dejected if you're like, oh, that's something going on, because it doesn't actually reflect the child's beliefs. And it may be different. And, um, and it is good to sort of, in a way that is appropriate, reinforce the child's beliefs, if that's coming up, especially during your visit. Um, because I think that's also important for that adolescent teenager to hear another adult, not their parents, have different views than them that are in line with their views. So I, I you know, it, it's a really difficult situation. So I don't want to under, you know, over sort of simplify it. But I, I think that there, I'm, I have to be a hopeful person studying racism. Like you have to be like, I study it to try to reduce it, right? And there are still ways to reduce. What kinds of academic research and data are there that can contribute to this conversation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of data on um, sort of the different ways that these, you know, like attitudinal um, beliefs and how they lead to different actions. I will say I would love to see more RCTs on interventions that people come up with to combat this. There are a few, but there's not many. And I think part of the issue is really implementation. And as as <laughs> you know, our friend Sarah Kate Fairman, um, who is really into implementation science, um, would sort of talk about this, but this is really um, an issue within this field. And I will say the thing that is the most, absolutely the most um, successful way is, is policy changes and, and within your institution or organization. So very simply like making the changes about like, okay, we're going to give literature. Now we're going to start talking about like, there's, there's ways. And these can be like policies in terms of protocol um, that makes changes. Right. Um, my dream would be to test these myself <laughs> to see how well they work and what the effectiveness is um, in sort of reducing attitudes, increasing behavior, anti-racist behaviors. Um, you know, so that's like a future goal of mine. But um, and a lot of us that do this work, because that's really where we need. We are like stuck in attitudes and we need to move to behaviors. And um that's really the next the next step. So I wish I can say like, you take a workshop for three hours and then you come out and you know everything. That's not how that works. Those effects last for 30 minutes. This process has to be like ongoing. You have to be, you know, constantly engaged in these issues to truly like have, make changes um, in attitudes. And the way to be constantly engaged is also like your work, your institution implements some of these things in just the daily uh, processes that happen, right? So um, there are some data out there <laughs> that look at this. I feel like there needs to be more, of course. Um, but there's a lot of evidence about how racism affects things like health outcomes, mental health outcomes. So we, we know like what the effects are, whether or not the interventions work. I really feel like that's pretty early on. We need more testing. What kind of advice would you give a teenager to be safe if they find themselves in a situation with police? And should this be a part of our patient education? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the reality is, is that for, um, you know, teenagers of color, particularly males of color, I mean, it, females as well, but especially you know, males of color, there is just a different experience when um, interacting with the police. I mean, and so I, I think that, you know, there needs to be really sort of candid acknowledgement of that 
And, you know, I've been involved in efforts, you know, or discussions around, well, what do you tell these teenagers, you know, when they interact with police? And, and it's interesting because it, it becomes unfortunately politicized, right? So, you know, I'm a director of a policy institute and you might recall, um, a, a few years ago, um, again, you know, when there was a, yet another shooting and, um, and these incidents, unfortunately, are cyclical, but there was a conversation that, you know what, you know, we need to take these, um, you know, these young men of color and we need to talk to them and to tell them exactly how they need to behave when they come into contact with police. And so the, the focus was completely on their actions and their behavior, putting the onus on them. And as you might imagine, there were some, you know, pretty strong reactions to that because it, you know, it sort of suggested that um, police have no culpability in these interactions and that the onus is completely on, on the kids. But, but, but I will say, politics aside, that it is helpful for, for teenagers to have some basic understanding of, look, because you you know, teenagers of color, because you are likely to be seen in, you know, unfortunately stereotypical ways, it's going to be especially important that when you come into contact with police, that that your actions won't draw any un, sort of unwarranted attention. I Yeah. So I, I will I just add to what uh, Kevin is saying, I would also ask the parents if they've had this conversation with their child. I am sure that they have had this conversation with their kid. Okay. So, um, and that said that that could really, I think really that's the start, right? Because you, you don't want to also overstep a situation in which a parent wants to have that conversation with their kid and they may be ready to do that without, you know, and so I would actually be asking parents, have you talked to your child about what to do when they come in contact with an officer? Because then they will tell you no, yes. And then I would ask, are you comfortable with me sort of talking about this now, because I'm going to tell you as a mom, I would be not happy if someone's talking to my son about this before we had a chance to talk. So I would just first caution to ask the parent first, especially because um, I'm sure that they've had that discussion and, you know, and for the, and Kevin, you know, had a discussion with our son this past summer after the, the George Floyd was murdered. And it was really emotional. And it was really important to, you know, have like his parents there in the process of information. So I think that's also so that's like the version of the talk for us folks of color with our kids. And we just want to make sure that you're not overstepping. And it might be like, oh, no, we've talked about that. Thank you. And, and it's also meaningful that you're asking about it because you're also acknowledging their experience. So. Well, what an amazing conversation that was. And we are so appreciative to our speakers today. Um, I think we all learned so much. We just wanted to step in and offer some practical kind of next steps um, and how we can do the work um, to better our ability to serve our patients. Um, so first we're going to talk about um, resources to enhance our own knowledge and do the work for ourselves. Second, just practical questions that we can introduce to our patients during visits that are age appropriate. Um, and lastly, resources that we can offer our families um, that they can go home with and ways that they can continue these conversations at home. Hi, I'm Christina Ruiz. And I'm Yasaman Amadie. We're both third-year pediatric residents, and we're going to talk about resources for medical professionals and systemic racism. You know, it's been apparent for a long time that systemic racism is per pervasive in medicine and needs to be rooted out. But I don't think I've done anything substantial to address inherent biases that I may have until this past spring. Seeing George Floyd's murder being reported next to the mounting COVID-19 crisis really gave me the kick I needed to do better. Yeah, George Floyd's uh, and even Brianna Taylor's murders were very shocking events. Um, and it definitely confirmed that the systemic racism cannot be ignored anymore. 
And I'm so thankful like, for our, the social media um, to bring our attention to these events and also give us platform to learn more about it. To be honest, um, I always avoided politics because I was raised in a country um, that politics controlled my life and predicted my future. But, you know, now I cannot stand the systemic racism and the politics around it actually control my um, patients' lives, my, the people of color patients. Um, and this is why um, I want to get involved more um, in learning how I can educate myself to empower myself as a physician and advocate for my patients. Um, what resources do you use to educate yourself, Christina? One of the places I started to look for resources was Instagram of all places. And I think I found several that helped me grow as a physician. I started following pages that reminded me daily that there's more pressing issues than cute dog videos. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty important to ignore those dog uh, videos. <laughs> um, can you tell us more about these resources? Yeah, so the first one that I found um, was something called The Conscious Kid, um, and it was one of the first pages that I started following. As a pediatrician, I feel like it's important during moments of crises or national unrest to help parents help their children understand and cope what's going on around them. Um, and The Conscious Kid is one of those pages that has real-time advice and resources that I was able to share on social media. Uh, for working on myself, um, I started following The Great Unlearn, um, which is created by Rachel Cargill. She's an academic activist and a woman of color. Um, her coursework has curated lessons on systemic racism that apply to all folks. She has a free 30-day challenge as well as a monthly coursework available for a small donation, and I really enjoyed it. Oh, those are really good resources. You know, I actually... Me and you also, we are uh, following the Ally Nodge challenge. Um, and I, I believe like it really challenged us and also gave us momentum to take actions. Um, you know, I realized I need to find my voice as an individual and also, uh, also a professional medical care provider. And it also provided me with the opportunity to actually pay attention to kind of like all aspects of racism, minor ones or major ones. Um, um, and I found out that I'm also part of the problem too. And we're all responsible and need to accept that we have biases. Yeah, I loved it. Um, the Ally and Edge was something that we were able to do um, with our co-residents. And it was great to be able to talk about those topics um, with people who are, we are training with. Um, and I think that systemic racism really needs to be a part of uh, an integral part of training for medical students, residents, and faculty if things are going to get better. And, you know, I also really don't like listening to news because it does kind of stress me out. But ACLU Instagram account um, and the website is a great resource for learning about new legislations. And I actually got introduced to that when I was an undergrad and um, they are pre pretty good advocate um, for you know, people of color and um, uh, all genders. Um, so I think like that would be a good one to kind of like learn about all the new legislations. And you guys, at the end of the day, there are so many resources that you can use to increase your own comfort and knowledge in the space. The important thing is that you do the work and get started. So once we've done the work, once we feel more confident um, in our um, own knowledge that we've acquired, I think it's really important to, to step in and use our role as a pediatrician and our opportunity to be with patients um, to start asking some questions and, and get involved even in the visit. So I wanted to talk about some really practical ways that we can do that. Um, first, I think it's important to remember that every family, regardless of their race or ethnicity, needs to be having these conversations. And I think our speakers did a wonderful job um, kind of stressing the importance of that. Um, so in the visits, um, our job is to 
remain caring, remain collaborative, um, and be culturally humble. Like we get to learn from our patients, just like our patients potentially can learn from us. Um, and so we're just trying to enter into these conversations. Um, I think it's important before having these conversations that um, we recognize that we um, are there to listen and to learn and to keep talking about this with our patients, not just a one-way conversation. Um, so I, I was using this resource, it's from Emory and um, it's from their diversity and inclusion subcommittee. They did a wonderful job putting together um, specific questions that are age appropriate because as pediatricians, we know we take care of patients ranging from very, very young um, up until 18. So um, tailoring our um, specific questions to each age group I think is really important. Um, so to get started, um, as our speakers discussed, there's really no age that's too young. So starting around the age of three to seven is a great way to start entering into these um, conversations during a visit. Um, and in this age great in this age group, because they're so young, um, it's important to kind of direct the questions to the caregivers first. Um, asking some open-ended questions like, what is your family's experience with everything going on in the world right now? How has your family talked about this altogether? What resources would be helpful to support you in talking to your child about race? Um, and then once you ask those questions, be able to know what resources you would provide. Um, and we'll discuss that in a little bit on this podcast. Um, and then you can also talk to the child about new vocabulary um, and introducing them to words such as race, black, white, Asian, et cetera. Um, once the child gets a little bit older and you're in kind of that young adolescent group of like eight to 12, um, at this point, you can start asking questions to everybody in the visit. So the caregiver and the patient asking open-ended questions like, how is your family supporting each other on the topic of diversity? What worries do you have right now with what's going on in the world? Asking the parent, what questions are hard to answer for your child regarding race? Um, and then you can ask the patient um, about different situations when they were treated unfairly or they see someone treated unfairly, what did they do and how did they respond? Um, and it's okay at this point to start asking the children about maybe racial slurs they've heard or bad words that they've heard um, and how to kind of address that. And lastly, when we are dealing with teenagers, as we talked a lot about with our speaker today, um, at this point, they are young adults and it's, it's time that they can have conversations kind of on their own. Um, and this is where you get to decide, do you wanna have this with just the adolescent or still with the caregiver in the room? Um, but you can continue asking open-ended questions like who are some people that you feel comfortable talking with about racial issues? And how are you taking care of yourself? And um, questions like, I'm curious if you've ever felt discriminated against and how did you handle that? Um, at this point, you can appeal to the teenager's intellect and encourage them to engage in meaningful ways um, to get involved. You can encourage them to be volunteering um, or getting involved in areas of po positive change. Um, so I think this was helpful to me to recognize um, age-appropriate questions and really practical ways to get involved within a pediatric visit. Hi everyone, this is Sarah Campbell. I'm one of the pediatric interns and I'm gonna talk about a few of the resources for healthcare providers um, to feel comfortable starting these conversations as well as resources for helping parents talk to their children and teens about race. Um, and all of these resources that we discuss will be provided to listeners as a handout that will be um, available as a link in the description of this podcast. Um, so first we wanna discuss how to talk to different ages about race. Um, the American Psychological Association has a great website about how to approach talking to ages ranging from toddlers to teenagers. They have different strategies about how to engage each age group. And this website also has great information for parents to prepare themselves for these conversations, as well as resources parents can look at with their children to guide discussions. There are links to videos and articles um, for, the, for parents to read in order to make these conversations easier. Um, this website also has a great list of books for each age group for children and teens um, that are also have links uh, about how to buy these books online. Um, and then this also brings me to another, a few other resources about how to get great books for different age groups to be able to talk to your 
um, open up these discussions for race um, with your children. Um, the Oakland Library has links to books um, that are grouped by age as well, um, as well as articles and videos and links to other websites. And then a great local resource is that the Austin Public Library also has um, a list of books, but specifically geared towards teens and young adults. Um, and these can be reserved online and picked up in person. Um, and joining the Austin Virtual Book Club can actually be a great interactive way to discuss and learn with your child. And then these are just a few ways for parents to prepare to have these conversations with their children beginning early in childhood. Um, our goal is to empower parents and pediatricians and provide them with the resources to make them feel comfortable talking to their children about race. Make sure to take a look at our handout and feel free to share this handout with parents. We hope you learned a lot and we appreciate you spending this time with us. That you have a candy in your mouth that I did not know about. Yes. I'm yes. trying absolutely flavor. Okay. Oh, you're trying all the flavors of the candies? Okay. Okay, we're at one minute, seven seconds. How would you describe your skin color? If somebody asked you, what's your skin color, what would you tell them? Like a kind of, kind of like this color? Like an apple? Yes. Okay. Good to know. Thank you.